If you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews this morning. I was thinking about our lesson on Wednesday night, William Carey's encouragement to that congregation, unmoved by his passionate sermon to think and dream of big things for God as as Joan was sharing the mission of what God has been doing there in Papua. And just what an encouragement uh, to see such a work going on and emphasis on discipling them and making Christian leaders of the next generation. Well, if you have your Bibles open to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 7, <clears throat> I want to begin reading for us this morning in verse number 20. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Bible says, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became a priest were made such without an oath. This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, Lord, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those other priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which come later than the law, appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. Now pray with me. Father, what a what a glorious reminder of who Jesus is to us this morning. Lord, I just pray that you would just speak to our hearts and refresh our minds, how easy they are to be carried on with the cares of this life, not only even in this moment, but throughout this week. And Lord, how we need to be jarred and, and our memories uh, be stirred up again of who Christ is and, and not only who he is in his person, but what he has done for us on the cross. And now what he is doing for us in glory. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is an old famous story now, as many of you probably recall, of Luther's um, entering into the priesthood. Fear struck him in the middle of a lightning storm, and he cries out to St. Anne, Save me. And if you will, I will join the monastery. It's not probably the best way to join or enter into the ministry. Uh, but nevertheless, the Roman Catholic Church has never been the same. I only say that because the practice of crying out to the saints and, and, and praying to those who have gone on has been a common practice in the Roman Catholic Church and even throughout the Middle Ages since some suggest the 4th century. And up to now, I, I'm not sure exactly the number. I thought I read 10,000, but there's thousands of people whom the church or the Roman Catholic Church has 
venerated as saints, some of which specialize in certain areas of life which we call on. And, and, and in that calling on, we can get help, whether it's Saint Anne, who is the saint of the minors, or, or someone, other saint, who is one in compassion, or if I don't know what I want, or in my confusion, there's another one, and so on it goes. And I don't say all of that to, con, uh, to recommend that practice, Actually, I think it is not scriptural at all. The Word of God does not teach that. But it does speak to that, that basic human need, that, that desire to call in the midst of our troubles, help to someone, call on someone to find help and encouragement when we are overwhelmed with life. And for most of us, we call on friends or family members or church members to, to come alongside and intercede for us. Uh, and and with that, even I, uh, even in my own experience, and maybe yours as well, you find even non-religious people not uh, not turning down the possibility of some divine help if you choose to say, "I'll pray for you." Well, thank you, you know, and and maybe help will come, even though they don't believe. And yet, the Bible comes to this place in the Book of Hebrews, a church who's dealing with suffering and persecution, and. And he brings them to this, this help which is given to them, but not in, in the way in which we might think. For them, they, they look at an intercessor before God and the priestly system that had been given to them, we talked about last week. And the writers are reminding them God's provision and, and God's help is given to us in a greater priest that is in Jesus Christ himself. Not only is he greater, which is the theme of the book of Hebrews, as he's going through person to person to person, greater than the prophets and greater than Moses and greater than Aaron, greater than Abraham. We looked last week. He is greater than the high priest. But here he comes to verse number 25, where we'll spend most of our time this morning. He comes to verse 25. Not only is he greater in his personhood, but he is greater in his ability. So if you were wondering, if you were a Jewish Christian in the first century and wondering if this Jesus thing would work out in the midst of persecution and when you face death's door, then, then the writer is assuring them he can finish what he started. He is able. He is able. And that's what we see. Look at verse 25 with me. He says, consequentially, because of who he is, as we looked last week, for those of you who were not with us, he is greater by virtue of his personhood. He mentions at the beginning of chapter number 7, he is, he is like Melchizedek in that he is the king of righteousness and the king of, of peace. He is greater in his honor in that he receives honor from Abraham. He is greater in the very fact of Hebrews chapter number 1 that he is God the Son, sharing the glory of the Father and the exact imprint of his nature. To put it in layman's terms, he, he possesses by his own right of who he is, the same godness as the Father possesses because he is God. This is Jesus, whom he is preaching, our great high priest. So naturally, as he comes to a conclusion of comfort to this church and comfort to us, this priest, to the uttermost, as we might say in verse 25, he, he begins with that short little word, in just four letters, he begins with, he is able. He is able. And you know the Bible does not teach or preach a God who is, who is powerless. 
one whose hands is tied behind his back or who is trying to catch up with the chaos of going on in our lives and around the world. In fact, what you see from the very beginning is a God who in the midst of chaos creates order by the very power of his word when he says, let there be light. Working through creation, bringing into existence, displaying for all of us from the very beginning the power and the ability of this great God. He is able. He's not weak and feeble as we might have imagined or some would imagine in our culture, in our society, or as the pagan God, some stone or tree or some other thing that they, they uh, dream up in their minds. No, he is able. And that's what the gospel teaches. It's what the Bible declares for us. And not just God in general is able, connecting the reality of who Jesus is, being God himself. He likewise is able to secure all that he promises us. He is able. Let me just give you a few verses. You may want to jot the references down. And uh, as we walk through the New Testament, uh, just looking at that reality of God's ability in Matthew 3, verse number 9, speaking of the nation of Israel who boasting in Abraham being their father and and the prophet reminds them that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. What 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 a picture in your mind, isn't it, as he preaches to them. But you see the power and the work of God. Matthew 9, 28, Jesus being able to open the blinded eyes. And John chapter number 10, verse 29 No man is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why? Because he is able to keep us firmly in his hand. Romans 16 verse 25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. He is not hindered in helping you this morning wherever you are. Uh, Ephesians 3, 20, probably one of the most profound and beautiful verses describing this for us and he says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us hebrews 2 verse 18 says he is able to help those who are being tempted and jude 24 tells us that he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you Blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. All of that to bring our minds back to the fact that this morning Christ is able. He is capable of doing what he said. In 1996, I uh, checked into Fort Hood, Texas. I was assigned to 1st 82nd uh, Artillery Division there. They were the dragons. That's something nice for an 18-year-old guy to be a part of. Sounds tough anyway. Well, a custom which would, would go on when you would pass an officer, you would, you would shout out the motto. Usually, uh, in, back to the officers, you'd walk by, and the motto was, Cannon wheel. Cannon wheel, sir, and you walk on about your business. Well, that's the motto that the Hebrew writer is trying to convey to us this morning. Here he speaks of Christ in in this can and will. His ability is unlimited. His resources are are, are never sparingly. He is able this morning to do all that he has promised. He is able and he is willing. 
And that's what we see not only here, but his willingness in sacrificing himself as he will later on teach us uh, throughout the book of Hebrews. And that is exactly what we need jarred in our minds. That's what we need to be brought back to, the ability of God. Because week after week in, in trial and circumstance after circumstance, we are, we're mounted with obstacles which are large. They're, they're not always small things which we, we trip over, but they're, they're huge and, and we feel the weight of those things. And we need to be brought back to the reality of the, the bigness, the power, the hugeness of who this God is in our life and the promises which he has given us. We face those overwhelming things of sickness which taunt us in sorrow and sin, which alone leads us to despair. And yet the Word of God keeps pointing our attention and our minds back to He is able, beloved, to give all grace. He is able to give all strength. He is able to give all help in time of need. He is able this morning. What an encouragement for us. He is able to make all grace abound. Beloved, this morning we have a able, capable Savior. And that's what he says here. Not only is he able, we already saw in Hebrews chapter number 2, to help those in, in our temptation, help us in the midst of our temptation. Not only is he able to sympathize with us in our suffering and our emotions which we feel through trials and the things that we face, but he is also able to save, which is at the very heart of the gospel and the very thing which he came to do. That's what we read this morning in the testimony of Paul in 1 Timothy verse number 15. Christ Jesus, why did he come into the world, Paul? To save sinners. That's what he says. Is that what Jesus said? I came into the world to save that which was lost. Think about that, church. What does it require? What is it what does it require? What is the requirements to be saved? To be a sinner. How many of you fit that category? Well, if you don't, then, then you need your eyes open because the truth is we're all there. And he says that he is able to save. He is coming not just in the help and in this present life, which would be okay, but, but we need something lasting beyond this life, beyond our, our tombstone. The Bible tells us it is appointed and a man wants to die and after this the judgment. We need help then, not just now. And he says he is able to save, to deliver us, to rescue us. Now, I've been through, reading through the book of Judges lately. I don't know when the last time you've read through that, uh, that glorious account of up and down. It's like driving through the Adirondacks, right, in, in a convertible. And you just go up and down. And one moment the children of Israel are doing well and they're prospering and there's peace. The next moment they're worshiping a tree and the enemies come and God gives them over to their enemies. And then after that, they cry unto God and God gives them a deliverer. And if you just look at the flow of the book of Judges, you find the judges become worse and worse and worse. What you see is that the human judges which God gives them are flawed and oftentimes snared in the same sin that they themselves are in. And though God uses these imperfect and flawed creatures, it brings us back to the reality at the end of Judges. People's just going to do right in their own eyes. And yet God says He has sent us a different kind of Savior. 
And what gives us assurance of his ability to save us is, is really found in verse 26 and verse 27 because he himself needs no savior. Unlike Gideon, who is a mighty man of God at the beginning and then leads the people into idolatry right after his victory, here is one without the flaw, without the sin. That's what he says in verse 26. Consequently, verse 26, for it, is, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Notice describing who he is and what he is like. He is holy, innocent, unstained. Separated from sinners. And dear friends, this morning, if your heart has never been stirred at the, at the sight of communion, or at the thought of the, of the cross itself, then look at it through the lens of who he was, the innocent one. Now, I know we say in this world, and we face that, I'm innocent, and I didn't do this, and, and sometimes we truly are of this crime, but how many more crimes are we guilty of? And yet here is one who is holy. In the, very, in the very mention of these terms, it gives us both that delight and desire for because, because we long for something that is pure and real and true. And yet on the other side, we, if we're honest, we're scared of it because it is so foreign to us. And he says here, this Savior who has come, he is one who has come with, with full of holiness, all Completely holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Verse number 27, the beginning of it says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. Why? Well, because he himself had no sin. And because he had no sin in offering himself, that was, that was really what he said on the cross, wasn't it? It is finished. One pure, true sacrifice. And so we see he is able to save our great Savior. Well, we might ask the question, what is he to save us from? That's a good question, isn't it? We know when he was born, the angel says he will save his people from their sin. And that is true. We understand that. What a joy that truth is. But the Bible also says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, and verse number 3, we were, this is speaking of everyone, born in this world, born uh, human, which is everyone, right? And he says, we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does he come to save us from? The wrath of God. Not just this life to help us in this moment. And I want to say, beloved, it is the reality that he will help us in this moment that helps us or help us in that moment that will help us now. It is the fact that we don't have a temporary Savior just to, to, to give me a little push along the way, but that we have a Savior who, who has been battle-tested to withstand the judgment of God that gives us confidence in this moment to have courage. You see, He has faced the wrath of God for us. He is our propitiation, is what the Bible says. That's a big $5 word, isn't it? I'm sure you use a lot. What does it mean? He has put out or satisfied the, the fire. And, and it's fitting that we look at hell as being a lake of fire because it, it describes the, the unsensual appetite of the wrath of God on those who have sinned. Justice demands 
Justice demands that satisfaction, and that satisfaction has been satisfied in Christ himself. What has he come to save us from? And you might say, well, God is very cruel and angry and ugly that we, that we have that doctrine of hell and all of that stuff about wrath. But, but don't you understand? He is just God. He is a, a good God. And so He cannot let sin and violation of His own law and holiness go unmet. And you know that very well, don't you? By the, by the definition that is unjust and unholy and intolerable in our own society when a judge lets a criminal go free. How much more when a holy God who has created us for his glory and for his honor and to, to magnify him and that creation, to rebel against him, to defy him and worship everything else but him, how much more is he just in doing what he has declared he will do? But you see, the gospel isn't just that, that declaration of that reality. It is the solution of that which we all have awaiting us, anticipating He's saying here to these people, you you look to the high priest and you look to that sacrificial system, don't you understand that that he is able to save? The salvation is found in him. He's able to save us from the wrath of God which awaits mankind. What a joy that is to know that we have hope, that we have a promise. We have a sacrifice, a substitute, all those, those things that we look at. What, what a, a glorious message. That's why we call it the gospel, because that's good news, beloved. That's good news. But notice he goes on and says at the beginning of this, not only is he able to save, but is able to save to the uttermost. The uttermost. And it can be translated, for those of you that use the NIV, completely. New American Standard Bible uses the word forever, uh, linking the eternal nature of the priesthood of Jesus to his full work of salvation. The King James Version ESV translates this as uttermost. All of them have valid points as they try to grapple with what he is saying here uh, when he speaks about the uttermost. I want to look at it through two lenses. One, speaking about the reach of God's salvation, the reach of it. How far can God's grace reach? How far? Psalms 139 is uh, interesting as David writes, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Spurgeon has rightly said uh, of this verse in Psalms, or in uh, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, he says, One thing is for certain, certain, you and I don't know how far the uttermost is. As far as our mind can stretch, as far as we can go in this life, away from God, even there God is, and His grace can be found. His grace can be found. Now some of you might say this morning, but you don't know the things that I've done. You don't understand the life that I live, the sin that I've committed. You don't understand the scars and the pain that, that it involves in being me. And you're right, I don't understand. But I'm not telling you this morning that I'm able to save you to the uttermost. But I am telling you that Jesus understands and he is able to save you even to the uttermost. Not a sin in your past, not a, not a depth, not a pain, not a sorrow is, is out of the reach of God's grace. 
He is able to redeem you, heal you, deliver you, save you to the uttermost. And you know the scripture is filled with all sorts of examples like this. As children, we admire those examples. We think how godly they are and how wonderful they are. The next thing you know, we come to read that Abraham's lying about his wife being his you know, family member and all this other stuff. You know, filled with murderers and thieves and, and covetous people, idolaters, demon-possessed people, adulterers and adulteresses, all of them bringing back the reality that God's grace is bigger than their ability to sin and outrun it. Just ask Jonah. In the belly of a great fish, in the depths of his own rebellion, quitting on God and finds there the grace of God. The salvation is of the Lord. Or the thief on the cross who had been cursing Christ up to the very moment that we find. And at the very end of his life, at the last hour, he finds God's grace is able to reach and deliver him from the very, from the very cusp of death itself. I don't want that to say this, that you may be here this morning, you may have felt that way in your past, in your life. You may be struggling with that right now. I don't know. You may think that you're some kind of different messed up than the rest of us. Let me assure you, you're not. We're all messed up. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all have scars and and pain and those things that, that and some of us, if the if the rest of us would see it, if we knew it, then, then maybe we wouldn't fellowship with you. Who knows? We're kind of funny like that. But that's not what we're preaching this morning. That's not what the Bible says. It says even in that, God's grace can be found. He can deliver to the uttermost. He can deliver to the uttermost. I love in Romans thinking about uh, in Romans chapter number seven. And six, where he talks about where sin abounds, grace does. What does it say, church? Much more abound. And that's what the Bible is teaching us, even to the uttermost, the reach of God's salvation. I, I know that is encouragement to you this morning, but I know many of you have children that you've been praying for, and grandchildren, cousins and brothers and sisters who's not walking with the Lord. You're hard and you worry about them as they are like Demas in the Bible who loves this present age. Now let me just encourage you, even in their current situation, they're not out of God's reach. Pray, believe. He is able to save to the uttermost. But you love the prodigal son as he comes to himself, which is a gift of God. The father runs to meet him. He doesn't even get all the way back. Some of you have found that in your own testimonies, right? As you turn to, to finally find yourself at the bottom or whatever it is, as you turn, you find God's already there to meet you with arms of grace and restoration. He is able to save to the uttermost. But it isn't just the reach of God's salvation. The word has the, has the tone, or, or as the NIV translated, it speaks of the fullness of salvation or the, the completion of salvation. And, and that speaks that he, he will finish what he started. It isn't that he's like a, a dad who's trying to teach his child to ride a bicycle. And so you, you put him on the bike and you kind of get him going straight and then you let go. And then you say, keep pedaling. And sometimes we think of religion that way, and God is doing that. He gets us straightened out, and He gets us on the right path, and He says, keep it up, and I'll meet you at the end. 
Beloved, if that's your view of Christianity, no wonder there's no hope. No. He is able to finish what he started from A to Z. And we read in Revelation that he is the, the Alpha and the Omega. Or elsewhere we read that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. You see, he is able to finish what he started. And, and that means not just dying on the cross and, and not just giving out the gospel to the world, but to secure his people unto himself till one day we will, Romans 5, be around the throne praising him who had been slain. And nothing that we face, nothing that we encounter in this life will undo him or, or cause him to fret and to worry and, and come to a place that I just can't handle it. I just can't finish it. Some of you probably feel that way about your remodeling projects. But can I just assert to you this morning, that is not how Jesus feels. He will finish what he started. The full end of salvation, the full spectrum. And you might ask, what about my sin? Because I keep sinning and I keep messing up and I keep getting it wrong. Well, welcome to the club. In fact, who here doesn't? Don't raise your hand because that would be awkward. But he says, don't you understand? That has been covered by his blood on the cross. The same blood which covers covers us as we come to Him by faith. Repenting of our sin is the same blood that keeps us covered, presenting us before Him spotless when we meet Him one day face to face. You know, sometimes it is true that we can rejoice very little at this truth. And I don't know why. I mean, I guess I have my inclinations. I'll give you one of those at this moment. I think partly that's because we... We rarely feel our need of it. We really feel like we're okay. And after God gets us straightened out and we, we get along in this life pretty good and things are okay, and after all, I, I've not really ran over anybody. I, I kind of little road rage, but not a lot of road rage. And, and so I'm, I'm doing okay. And isn't that the reality of God bringing us through various trials and situations in our life to, to show us? And even our salvation, even our hope doesn't rest in us. And in what God does through those situations, even through our sin, when we blow it. And how many of you have done that this week? How about this morning? He's causing us to turn away from ourselves and quit looking at ourselves as our own Savior and look to Him who's able to save to the uttermost, who's able to finish what He started. I could sit there and look at myself all day long and, 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 and kind of... You know, look in the mirror and, and contemplate on who I am. And I would be very discouraged by the end of the day. I might be discouraged as I think about this sermon at the end of the day. Who knows, you know, how we are. But God does not point me to myself to be my Savior. He does not say my completion rests in myself. It rests in Him who is able to finish what He started. It rests in Him who is able to save to the uttermost. That's the message and the hope that he's giving us. But look, not only do we see his ability, but secondly, very quickly, we see who can be sure of this. And that's very important. As you see, the second part of that verse is able to save to the uttermost, but to who is this given? 
those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to God through him. He doesn't give an ethnicity of people. He doesn't give a class of people. He doesn't give a, a structure or, or a gender of people. We like those labels in our current society. No, he says those. Any, all who will come to him. He's not teaching universalism in the fact that, that all people in all the world have this same hope. He's not saying that at all. That would be blasphemy and, and discredit the work of Christ on the cross. But what he's saying is that, that out of all of these groups and, and all of these ethnicities in Papua and in Africa and in America and, and of all of these classes and all of these kinds, it is out of all of those who come to God, those who draw near to God, that's who has this hope of being saved to the uttermost. That is the gospel offer this morning, isn't it? What a promise that God has given us. And, and what does he say? Even then that promise will come that you may receive it, right? Come that you may receive it. But it is, it is neat how he says those who draw near to God and not those who draw near to church. Now this is bad advertising, I, I admit, because I like to see people come. And so come on Wednesday night. It would be great to see all of you here. But I want to say this plainly and lovingly as I can. There's thousands and thousands of souls in hell who died on a church, well, died having frequent church week after week. Because it is in our ritualistic minds, it is in our tendency to think that going through the motion of something is the same thing as embracing something, the same thing as benefiting something. And church is essential. I don't mean to discredit it. Church is important. It is important for a Christian development in our life. And when we hear the gospel and we encourage one another. But, but it isn't the end all. It isn't I just come and checked in an hour and a half in the week and, and then I'm just disconnected. I did all that. He says, no, those who come to God. There's a difference. Do you know that this morning? There's a difference. Not only those, he doesn't say those who come to church and I feel like I'm be meddling a little bit. He doesn't say those who come to camp. We're filled with that. Those are great things. God can use those. Enjoyment. But he says this prophet isn't those who draw near to camp or, or charity work or all those things that we tend to put some kind of merit in and, and some kind of a bank account that we build up. No, he says those who come to God. And that's what the gospel call is. Come to God. But as you come, you have to come through Jesus. He is the only way. He is the only way to come. He says, those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ. He says, let me just give you a, a, three little statements here. It means that those who come, they come with a need. Remember what we said? All it takes... All it takes to require salvation or, or the prerequisite for salvation is that you're a sinner. And that's really what the gospel declares, the reality of our own need, our brokenness, our burden, all that we face, bowed down with a weight and guilt. And he says, those who come, even the Bible says, doesn't it, a, a contrite spirit he will not despise. Those who draw near to God, 
turning from their sin, turning to Christ. Those have that great confidence that he is able to save to the uttermost. Thirdly, he says, we can rest in this because he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice the exclusive language. Who's the them? Us, those who come to God. And that's the offer to you this morning. If you don't know Christ, if you've never been born again, that's the offer. That in coming to God, you see not just a Savior dying on a cross, but one who at this very present moment is living to make intercession for the saints, keeping us. Our, our, our security and our confidence isn't resting in our life and our goodness, but in the fact that He lives. He's connecting us to the resurrection. He ever lives. He, he will never die. He will never cease to be. And therefore, we will never cease to have a representative before God, a friend in the throne of grace, one like us and one unlike us. And we need both. Amen? We need both. He at this present moment stands to intercede for his his people. He is eternal. His work will never cease. And his very life is our confidence and assurance. Well, beloved, this morning, I don't know what you're going through and all the things in your life and the people you pray for and the burdens you carry, but can I say at least point you to to one who is able to sustain you and help you. Jesus Christ, the holy, innocent, spotless Lamb of God, who who right now is standing, interceding for you in the throne of grace. As the writer says previously, and he continues over and over to, to point our mind and our attention on him, to come to him, to pray to him, to rest in him, to lean on him. And if you don't know him this morning, that is the offer given to you in the gospel. Come to Christ and be saved. Because he is more than capable of dealing with your past, your sin, and carrying on your future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for such a capable Savior in Jesus' name. Amen.